The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest and my friend, Anna LaPay. She is a nationally respected author and educator. She is known for her work as an expert on food systems and a sustainable food advocate. You may know her from the Real Food Media Project. This is a new initiative to spread the story of the power of sustainable food using creative movies, an online action center, and grassroots events. Anna holds an MA in Economic and Political Development from Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. She graduated with honors from Brown University. I met her because from 2004 to 2006, she and I were both Food and Society Policy Fellows together, and in 2010, she was the first innovator with the Glenwood Institute for Sustainable Food and Farming. Welcome, Anna. Thank you so much, Melinda. It's wonderful to be back on your show. Well, the last time we spoke, we were just talking about your latest book, which was Diet for a Hot Planet. And I should let our listeners know you are also the co-founder of the Small Planet Institute and Fund. And we'll give people a couple of links on where to find you. But we are going to talk specifically today about a report that you were a co-author on, and it was published by the Friends of the Earth. It's extremely timely. It's called Spinning Food, How Food Industry Front Groups and Covert Communications Are Shaping the Story of Food. So you and I have been longtime supporters of helping consumers navigate media messages. And as you write in the report, Media messages about the food industry, about agriculture, have become ever more sophisticated, and social media has helped expand truth, but also expand myth. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved in this report and why you decided to be involved with it. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to know about the context of this report is to know that all of the indicators are pointing to an incredible growth in the market for organic food, for sustainable food, the growth in demand, consumers saying that they want food free from chemicals, free from antibiotics, free from artificial hormones. Those figures are just going off the charts. I was struck recently by a report uh, by industry analysts that found that the current market for sustainable organic food in the U.S. is about $35 billion. And the predictions are that that market will expand to more than $175 billion by 2025. So you're talking about at a moment at which, as you said, more and more people are asking about where their food comes from, caring about the answer to that question, and wanting food free from chemicals, wanting food that has been raised sustainably. And so I was interested to see that over the past year or two, I've been noticing more and more dollars being spent by the chemical ag industry, by the biotech industry producing GMOs, by the industry backing animal production that uses antibiotics and uses artificial growth hormones, that there's more and more spending I sensed around communications and messaging to try to undermine consumer demand for that sustainable food. And so this report really came out of curiosity that my co-authors and I had to investigate, is there more money being 
spent on these covert communications front groups we can talk about more in a minute, but on these efforts to try to really shape the story of food. And ultimately, we argue that, yes, there is more money being spent in that way, and that really it is, in a way, a sign of the success of educators and advocates to really mobilize consumers to ask these questions and to make different choices in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. And it's not just consumer-directed messages. I see messages that are clearly written by agribusiness and the food industry at large that's depending on these kinds of highly processed foods and genetically modified ingredients. They reach dietitians too. And they may present, say, a free lunch at a state dietetic association meeting. They may fund or sponsor a breakfast panel. And you're not hearing the truth, but you're hearing and seeing very cleverly crafted messages that would make us think, oh, don't tell your clients or don't tell consumers that organic is better. And yet we know, I don't know how much more evidence we need, really, to show that, you know, if you have a choice, do you want to eat something that's been sprayed with a chemical or not? Yeah, I think that that's such a great point, right? This, these communications we're talking about, and, and let me be clear, when, I, when we talk about communications tactics, we're talking about not only the very obvious kind of communications like advertising, marketing, buying a spread in a magazine, but tactics that are much more, as we put it, kind of much more covert, not as obviously with the fingerprints of, say, a company, or tactics that, as you put it, are reaching into and trying to influence how thought leaders, policymakers, and experts communicate the story of food. So reaching into the dietetic associations, influencing the school nutrition association, influencing doing visits on Capitol Hill with policymakers, training farmers to go speak to editorial boards at newspapers, those kinds of tactics. And as you describe it, yes, this is happening with such frequency. You know, we talk about the influence of industry on dietitians, and I was noticing that the California State Dietetic Association actually a few years ago had McDonald's cater the lunch at the meeting. And there was such outcry, actually, among dietitians that they have since discontinued that relationship. But I think that's, you know, one of these examples of how these companies are really getting in and really influencing the hearts and minds of, as you put it, not just consumers, but those who are ultimately making some of the key decisions that influence what we find on the supermarket shelves, what our kids find in school lunches, and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, the report, Spinning Food, is available at www.foe.org. That stands for Friends of the Earth, F as in Friends of the Earth, foe.org. And you can read through the whole volume. It's an easy entertaining read. It's shocking. But what I hope to do with you is to go through and pick out some key pieces that we want our listeners to walk away with. So I should maybe put the ball back in your court and say, do we want to start at the top or do we want to maybe dive in? I hope that we can get to talk a little bit about these industry front groups because they're so cleverly worded. I mean, the names are confusing and How do people really know, well, this information came from the Animal Agriculture Alliance or the Center for Food Integrity? What could be wrong with that? Yeah, exactly. So these front groups, I think it's a great place to start. So this term front group, it's been around for a long time. This is not a new tactic or innovative. Creating front groups is a tactic that industries have used for decades. So the tobacco industry used 
front groups as a way to try to diminish public concern about tobacco. It's a tactic used widely. And and what it is is, is essentially, it's, it's brilliant, it's creating organizations. In com- some cases, they are tax-exempt, 501c nonprofits, to creating organizations that sound independent, sound like they work in the public interest and are publicly-minded, but really, they are either wholly funded by one corporation or by a industry trade group or by a number of corporations that have similar interests. And sometimes that funding is somewhat easy to detect if you do a little sleuthing, and sometimes it's actually really hard to know who's footing the bill for the expenses of some of these nonprofits. But you mentioned some of the names, and as I said, these front groups, they're by design, they're meant to sound like they're a group that are working in our interests. So there's a group like Alliance for Food and Farming, mm-hmm. right? That could be that could be anything that sounds positive. That alliance produces a website called safefruitsandveggies.com. But what a little digging will, will tell you is that that's a front group that was designed by and developed by chemical agriculture interests, primarily in the state of California, to push back and fight back against public concern around chemical pesticides used on farms in California. And so what you find in their materials is a lot of misinformation about the uh, toxicity of these agricultural chemicals and a lot of misinformation, primarily geared toward mothers, to say, hey, you don't really need to worry about these things. Those groups telling you you should buy organic are just fear mongers. They're not really science-based. Whereas what we know is that the science is ever more clear about the health implications of agricultural chemicals, especially for mothers that are nursing babies, especially for pregnant women, especially for the elderly or immune-compromised people. So at the same time, we have so much more science on the side of the evidence of the impact of these agricultural chemicals. You have these front groups trying to spread misinformation and fight back again through this covert communication tactic. Mm-hmm. And they never mention the effect of these pesticides on farm workers either. Have you noticed? Absolutely. One of the things that we talk about in the report, we mentioned five of the key talking points that are these, these messages that we hear in the media that are often attributed to so-called expert or an independent academic, but actually they are talking points that have been really developed and polished by industry trade groups or some of these front groups. And one of those talking points is this message that organic food advocates are elitist, that Mm -hmm. those of us who are advocating for the importance of organic farming are just these rich people who sip their lattes and drive their expensive cars to Whole Foods. And one of the things that we say in this report that we think is so important to stress is that that actually the, the truth is kind of the inverse of that, that who are the people who are most impacted by agricultural pesticide use? Those are farmers, they are farm workers, they are pesticide applicators, they are people living in rural communities near farmland. Those are the people who are most exposed and who rightfully, you know, should have the most concern about organic food. And so for those of us who are promoting chemical-free food, promoting tougher regulations around chemical agriculture, our point is that we're not elitists just, you know, concerned about what's happening in our own kitchens. We're really concerned about those most vulnerable in our communities who are exposed to these chemicals. And this talking point by the industry is an attempt to kind of 
divert attention away from that truth and sort of smear this group of people with this name-calling as opposed to really focus on the truth of what advocates are really fighting for. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that the produce marketing groups also develop webinars for dietitians with those very same messages that, you know, it's just a little bit of residue, not to worry, when actually, you know, the kinds of meetings that I go to are those where we have scientists who are studying the effects of pesticides on children, and I'm here to tell you, a little bit matters a lot. And so I find that these messages that are so woven into popular media as well as educational materials for healthcare providers are really dangerous for future generations. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the, the implications of this messaging are enormous. Our point is that if we are to debate what we think is one of the biggest questions of our era, you know, how do we farm, how do we feed ourselves, if we are to, to debate those questions, we need to be working with full information and we need to make sure we're not working with misinformation. We need to make sure that the people that are making decisions about how we should regulate agricultural chemicals, for instance, are basing those regulations on on the facts and, as we put it, not spin. And as you say, you know, so many of the groups that we talk about, one of the other ones you mentioned, the, the Center for Food Integrity, mm-hmm. again, a lovely sounding name. It has it spent nearly $6 million in 2013, and one of the things that it does is do webinars and promote these educational webinars with the patina of kind of dispassionate observers of the facts when really they are very much promoting a perspective of pro-chemical agriculture, pro-GMO, really dismissing the very real concerns that people have about that way of farming. Okay, let me remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Anna LaPay. She is director of the Real Food Media Project, co-founder of the Small Planet Institute and Fund, the author most recently of Diet for a Hot Planet, and co-author of a terrific report on the spinning of food, nutrition, and agriculture messages, which was published by Friends of the Earth. Okay, so I want to just touch on something that you just mentioned. In 2013, I believe you said that the Center for Food Integrity spent $6 million. And then on this chart from the report, you've got the value from 2009 to 2013, where they spent over $20 million. And, you know, for someone who works in public health, Anna, I have to always go back and say, oh, my gosh, $20 million – we haven't even spent a fraction of that in areas of public health education that really matter. So this idea of we're not getting a balanced message, that's a myth. We're getting this heavily weighted message that really is going to harm our families and our children and our future. So I think it's great that what you did on this chart is to show us what these numbers are. And just for a reference point, let me just remind everyone that this spending level so outweighs what we have in public health to give a more correct message. Yeah, that's right. So you mentioned just that one group alone and its spending. So overall, we looked at just 14 of these tax-exempt industry front groups, as we described them. And between 2009 and 2013, those groups spent almost $126 million dollars. That's a lot of money, um, and that's just those front groups. I mean, we're not even talking in that number 
of the amount of money that specific companies spent on their marketing and advertising. A lot of times those are product-specific marketing campaigns, but sometimes they're broader around sort of general messaging about food, health, and sustainability. And, and this number doesn't even include the total spent by the trade association. So we talk in the report also about the role of trade groups. So, so these are groups like the American Meat Institute or the Biotechnology Industry Organization or the uh, Crop Life America, which I love that name. It used to be known as the National Association for Chemical Manufacturers until they probably got some communications expert in there to say you should call yourselves Crop Life America. That sounds a lot nicer. Right. And you add those all together with also the trade group uh, for the Grocery Manufacturers Association and the total spending there. Now, this is a total that includes everything they spend money on, including lobbying, as well as marketing and communications and other trade association work. But you're talking about between 2009 and 2013, more than $600 million. Mm. So we're talking about just an enormous, enormous war chest of money to influence how people are thinking, uh, not just everyday people, but also elected officials and nutritionists, as you put it, and, and, and many other experts, how people think about food and farming. And we just thought it's very important to put these numbers out there, really highlight this is happening, especially for editors at media outlets to really call on media outlets to say it is your responsibility in a democracy, to be really shining a light into those dark corners, <laughs> um, to really, really shining a light on this misinformation, and to be supporting your journalists and reporters to do the kind of investigative work to help reveal some of this spin. You know, it's this is what our media outlets should be doing, and unfortunately, because of the imaging of some of our biggest media institutions, they have less and less funding to support that kind of investigative research. But what we argue in this report is that it has never been more important to have the resources to reporters to be able to do this kind of digging and not take this information at face value. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, you bring up a really interesting point about reporters because journalists are trained not to have a bias. They're told, you know, every story has to have balance. And this whole idea of balance is a little confusing to me because I remember how I first got into being actually a newspaper columnist was I was really distressed by this idea that, Somebody who really didn't understand the role of, say, nutrients in a person's diet was selling a supplement when they were given equal weight to, say, a dietitian who had studied the role of nutrients in health. I don't know if I'm making that clear, but this idea of balance when the two sides are not equal, it, that concerns me. Yes, and I, I think there's probably no better example in recent history of that than the early coverage on of climate change, yes. where you had this impetus to then deliver balance to the reporting. So you'd say, well, you have on the one hand scientists who are saying that there's this global warming effect and we should be very concerned about it. And on the other hand, you have scientists saying that there is no such thing as human-caused climate change. And of course, we know now, and we, we've known this for a long time, where the real science lies and that nearly 100% of all scientists around the planet defend the science behind climate change. And so to write a balanced to write a balanced story on that does not mean giving equal weight to those two sides. It might mean mentioning that there is a tiny fraction of marginal scientists who raise questions, but they are completely overwhelmed by the truth of the science of climate change. And I think there's 
really a similar story to be told when it comes to a lot of the points that sustainable food advocates are making about health and about nutrition and about sustainability. I mean, there is a incredibly robust science about the harmful effects of of some of our most widely used agricultural chemicals. There is just that's just the truth. There is a body of evidence there to then weigh any reporting with comments from scientists who have that knowledge with say an expert from the uh, Alliance to Feed the Future, for instance, which is one of these industry trade groups, you know, that isn't really actually giving an accurate story. Um, one of the other issues that we found when we were looking at what are these front groups really talking the most about, one of the issues that we found was a real through line across many of them was this debate about antibiotics being used uh, at a sub-therapeutic level, at daily dose level with uh, animals in factory farms. And Talk about a body of evidence. There's an incredible body of evidence that the use of those antibiotics on factory farms is driving up antibiotic-resistant bacteria, threatening public health, uh, that we know, again, from very valid evidence that as much as 70% of medically important antibiotics aren't being used in hospitals for people, but they're being used in industrial livestock operations. So there's this is just the evidence, the, the way it is, the truth. And yet when you see how the story gets told by some of these front groups, it's presented as if there's balance. So one of the groups we talk about is the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance, funded by, among others, the pharmaceutical companies that are producing the antibiotics used in factory farming. And they talk about that they're all about dialogue and having a balanced conversation. And I watched one of their quote-unquote balanced conversations about antibiotics and I was struck that in this debate where they had six people in, participating in this public debate, viewable online, they only had one expert who was raising concerns about antibiotics, and every other person they had on this panel was talking as if there's debate about this, as if there's no consensus on this, when there is consensus. Mm-hmm. So it really gave a twisted view of the science of antibiotics and animal agriculture, and very gave the view of the interests of the companies that are backing the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. Yes, I believe they call those gatherings dialogues. The Mm -hmm. word dialogues. Yes, and the whole word dialogue has now become this red flag for me because I see it so frequently used. You know, it's like, let's sit down and have a dialogue, but we will totally outnumber you and try to discredit any science that you bring to the table. And that's, of course, one of the strategies is to discredit the people who bring an opinion that's backed with good, credible science. They say, oh, no, that's not good science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the report, we share some of these, what we identified as some of the main tactics of these front groups and the communications by trade associations. And one of those tactics is this discredit and attacking journalists and scientists who are speaking out. And you're absolutely right. It's a sort of piling on of anybody who raised questions and concerns. And not only is it meant to silence the scientist who's speaking out, but it's also meant as a signal to other scientists who may have desire to speak out. It's a signal to say, look, you know, if you do this, we will come after you. And it, it has an incredible silencing effect. One of the scientists we talk about in the report is Tyrone Hayes, who's a scientist at UC Berkeley, who's the country's foremost expert on atrazine. 
an agricultural chemical, and he has produced incredible science about the harmful effects of atrazine. And Syngenta, who's the major producer of atrazine in this country, has for years, years been attacking his credibility, undermining his, trying to undermine his career. Uh, there's a fabulous New Yorker article that we cite in our report by New Yorker staff writer who details the story and she shares these internal memos from Syngenta's communications team about how can we undermine Tyrone Hayes, how can we discredit him, including trying to use the fact that he's an African-American scientist in a largely white field to try to make him insecure, to try to undermine him personally. The personal nature of these attacks cannot be underestimated. So this is a tactic, again, not not only the food industry companies that are doing this. This is what tobacco industry did. This is what Big Oil did to try to attack climate scientists. But it's a very common tactic, and it's one that's very important to to highlight, to really expose for what it is. Mm-hmm. Anna, one of the things that I've noticed is that really popular and well-respected publications such as National Geographic, or you'll see a business publication like Forbes, for example, when people see something written there, it has a much higher respect level. And we don't have much time left, and I'm really glad to see that you've got some conclusions and recommendations like what can the public do. But how do you help consumers take a publication that is widely respected and help them even question that? Yeah, well, I think that what I really came to out of doing this report was just a much deeper appreciation of how far and wide these communications tactics and communication spending go and how much these efforts are really influencing the reporting on food and farming in, as you put it, in these major media outlets from the New York Times to Time to National Geographic. So for those of us who are trying to make sense of these big questions, I would say that we need to approach all of the media that we consume with a real healthy dose of skepticism. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't mean that we need to throw up our hands and say, well, then who can we believe? We can believe nothing. It is to always question the sources, always question when you see an expert quoted to question what are the credentials of those experts because one of the things we saw time and time again with these covert communications tactics is the creation of what are known as third-party allies. So people who can be quoted in the media who have on paper seemingly no association to a corporation but have really been promoted by that corporation. So to bring that Syngenta case back up again, when you look at these internal Syngenta documents, you hear the company saying in these memos to the communications team, okay, who can be our third-party allies that we can have speak and question Tyrone Hayes' science? So, unfortunately, you know, I think it's not easy to know as we consume information in uh, the media to know necessarily who and how those stories are influenced. I think approaching it all with skepticism, and then kind of putting on our media activist hat on occasion to speak back up to media outlets when we feel that reporting hasn't been done fairly, hasn't been done accurately, writing letters to the editor, writing to the editor, writing to the journalist, both to raise questions as well as to applaud a journalist when they've done a good job. That kind of engagement with media 
what it's going to take to make our media outlets more accountable and make information more accurate. Well, I want to thank you so much, Anna, for being my guest. We've run out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And mostly I want to thank you, Anna, for being one of the authors on this report. We've been talking about spinning food, how food industry front groups and covert communications are shaping the story of food. It's available at the Friends of the Earth website. We will provide a link to that, as well as Anna's website. It's simply www.annalepay.com. And we'll have links to that, Anna. Again, director of the Real Food Media Project, co-founder of Small Planet Institute and Fund, and most recently the author of Diet for a Hot Planet. Thank you so much again for being with me. Thank you so much, Melinda. What a pleasure. 